Hey, Vetfolio Voice listeners, welcome back. This episode is sponsored by Merck Animal Health and features Dr. Nissa Reinsaltz, who joined me to talk about diabetes mellitus. There's no way around it. Diabetes mellitus can be a difficult disease to manage, but where we really get into trouble is when we start kind of focusing on the numbers and not necessarily on the patient who's in front of us. I know I've certainly been guilty of that. And and honestly, the line can be kind of blurry on when to intervene in a patient who clinically seems to be doing great, but whose data shows maybe everything is not quite okay. Dr. Reinsalz was great in helping make that line maybe just a little less blurry and help us as veterinary professionals create a comprehensive treatment plan for our diabetic patients that not only focuses on their blood glucose numbers, but also takes into account the pet owner and of course, the patient. Dr. Nissa Reinsaltz is a graduate of the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. She completed an internship in small animal internal medicine and surgery and a residency in small animal internal medicine at the Animal Medical Center in New York, New York. After achieving board certification in internal medicine, Dr. Reinsaltz was on staff at the Animal Medical Center with a focus on nephrology and endocrinology until 2009. Dr. Reinsaltz has worked for Merck Animal Health as an internal medicine consultant with an emphasis on diabetic support since 2012. Like I said, tons of great insight in this talk. Let's go ahead and jump right in. So I am joined today for this episode by Dr. Nissa Reinsaltz, and we are going to talk about diabetes mellitus. Nissa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I understand that part of your insight into diabetes mellitus comes from personal experience. Can you talk a little bit more about that if you're comfortable? Sure, absolutely. Uh, first, I should say that a majority of my career in veterinary practice was spent at the Animal Medical Center in New York City. And I was very fortunate in that position that I was able to focus uh, a lot on endocrine disorders in dogs and cats. So in 2011, I was rocking my son to sleep and uh, he had been drinking and urinating a lot and being a little more fussy than usual. And I, for reasons which I still don't know, leaned in to smell his breath and I smelled ketones on his breath and diagnosed him with diabetes in the rocking chair. It was actually somewhat fortuitous in that I've always been able to smell ketones. Like I could walk into an exam room and say, oh, does your dog have diabetes? And they'd be like, no. And I'm like, yes, it does. <laughs> so, so That is uh, impressive. It, it was a very useful skill. Yeah, people yes. would walk up to me with a dehydrated cat and say, does this cat have ketones? And, you know, I, I could, you know, it's weird. And I'm happy because because of that, you know, my son was a pretty healthy uh, diabetic child. Uh, as many children, unfortunately, by the time their parents pick up on the signs, have already you know, gone into ketoacidosis. And I, you know, we obviously within you know, the next morning, you know, he was, his diagnosis was confirmed and we were in the endocrinologist's office. And I joked when he was first diagnosed that we treated him a little bit like a dog because in fact, we would wait until he ate to give him his insulin and, and those kinds of things. But, you know, what I would say is having Jonah in my life as a veterinary endocrinologist has absolutely informed my work 
and allowed me both to have uh, an expertise about the disease, obviously, but maybe even more importantly, an understanding for how traumatic it could be for the owner of a dog or a cat when they find out their pet has diabetes. You know, it's obviously it's, you know, it's not exactly the same, but certainly uh, having that degree of empathy is helpful because sometimes we forget, you know, what the owner's experience is uh, during all this because it's, you know, it's a dog, it's not a person, but in fact, their lives are completely disrupted. You know, they now have to be home, you know, specific times of the day to do things for their dog that they obviously didn't have to do. I distinctly remember having a very brief sort of mourning period for my former life, which obviously to some extent they probably go through as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think kind of like you're talking about a very young child here, and then we're talking about dogs and cats, essentially creatures who can't communicate, who can't, oh, I mean, of course, I can't communicate verbally, let's say. And, you know, they really need somebody to be in tune with them and to advocate and to to pay attention to the subtle changes that are going on with them in order to to treat them, you know, in a, in a healthy and comprehensive way. I I can draw a lot of similarities there. And and I think you offer a lot of insight there as far as, like you said, that brief mourning period you went through, the traumatic effect of like, hey, now you have to do these injections, which, you know, when we're talking about it as veterinarians might not seem like a big deal to us because we give injections all day, every day. And, you know, monitoring glucose and all this, it kind of, you know, can click together in our brains a little bit to an owner with no medical expertise. Absolutely. I could see that being incredibly overwhelming and oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? And if I don't do this right, am I going to lose my pet? And, you know, they can't tell me what their blood glucose is. What if they don't eat all, you know, and all of this, this stuff that they have to deal with. And also, if you think about it, a lot of the information that owners have about diabetes comes from like television. And if you think about all the ads that the scary ads they have about, you know, diabetes, which is often, you know, type two diabetes, but you know, there's a lot of scary stuff that people know about diabetes. You go blind, you get your feet amputated, you need kidney transplants and, you know, all sorts of frightening information that people gather, which, you know, obviously it's not, for, you know, not the case for our patients, but, you know, they can sure have a lot of worries uh, that we don't even know about. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but that's a good point. <laughs> Again, I wouldn't have thought about it either had I not lived with it for the last 12 years. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, some of what I'm I'm hearing you say is is you develop this insight into how how your child, how your pet, how you know this diabetic that you're helping to manage is handling different situations in life. So from your perspective, when you're answering calls from veterinarians and they have questions about diabetes, what's one of the biggest things that you see in the way that we commonly manage diabetic pets that you you feel like could or should be done differently? I think one of the things that happens a lot is that we forget about the dog in the scenario, you know, because all the only information we really get is what the owners tell us and whatever testing we do. And, you know, we need to always remember that there's a dog in there, you know, because the owner, I think particularly with situations where they have a lot of information at their disposal, like if we're using a continuous glucose monitor or even home monitoring, all the owner sees really is the the numbers that they see in front of them. And they, you know, they're, they're, they get sort of a, you know, focused on, on the, that rather than, oh, my dog is doing really well. 
you know, and sometimes it, you know, we need to take a moment and remember that, you know, even if, you know, our glucose values are not exactly where we want them to be. And the owner comes in and says, Hey, you know, this, my dog's doing better than he's done in years. You know, why would we change things in a patient who, who's doing really, really well? And I will also say that sometimes we also forget to ask the owners, you know, what's, how things are going, you know, because we're very busy when the, the owner drops off for the glucose curve and, you know, nobody ever, nobody asked how the dog was doing. So it's really hard to interpret the data that you have without knowing at least what the owner's perception of, of the dog is. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Kind of, it, it makes me think a little bit about monitoring pre-pill cortisols in cushionoid patients to say, you know, if this dog is is Addisonian, you're probably going to have some indication that this right. dog is not doing well. So, you know, let's make sure it's not too low of a dose and the, and the dog isn't sick. It sounds right. kind of similar of let's make sure, you know, we're not losing weight and everything feels good yeah. at home for everybody. And then let's not mm -hmm. go crazy about the numbers. Yeah, I'm glad you, you brought up the you know, the weight thing, because that is also probably the most valuable information you could have for your diabetic patient. Because you know that if your patient is no longer losing weight or even better gaining weight, that means that the insulin product you are using is doing something. So, you know, it's certainly at minimum, you can provide the owner with some good, good information. Hey, good news. You know, we're, we're heading in the right direction. You know, we may not be where we want to be, but yeah, we're definitely heading in the right direction. And, you know, hopefully, you know, because um, if we just look at water consumption and urination, that can get very confusing because uh, oftentimes when I'm asked to consult on patients, you know, I'll get, you know, a whole bunch of glucose values uh, and, you know, often, like I said, sometimes without the body weight, without knowing, you can't tell if a dog who's hyperglycemic is is having hyperglycemia due to a Samoji overswing response, or if that dog is hyperglycemic because the insulin dose isn't proper or the insulin isn't working at all. But if I have that body weight, I can certainly lean in one direction or the other. Oh, the body weight's good. So, you know, it's clearly not completely inefficacious, you know, we're getting somewhere. So then it's a matter of figuring out whether you're, you know, your dose is too high or if you're just not at the right dose yet, which I'm not implying is easy, uh, but at least we've eliminated one of the options <laughs> just by knowing the dog's body weight. I think that's where diabetes can feel so overwhelming is there's so many variables to consider. And I think, like you said, the the water in urination can get complicated. I feel like more more than a couple of times I've had owners who say, no, like they're not drinking or peeing any more than usual. And then you make adjustments based on the other variables you have. And they're like, oh, actually they were like, now there's a big difference. Well, that, yeah, that also, that is, brings up a good point in that I do sometimes wonder if people sort of get acclimated to the dogs drinking and urinating a lot. And you're like, I'm not sure, but that's, and again, that's where body weight is the great equalizer because, you know, certainly if the owner's not complaining, it's at a point where it's clinically acceptable to them, which, you know, may not be the best control, but it's certainly, like I said, a positive note and progress. And, you know, I think that as long as we provide owners with 
some optimism and good news, you know, they'll be more likely to, to be willing to continue with the process. I want to go back to what you said about the continuous glucose monitors, because I will admit, like, of anybody, I've done so much reading and, and you know, education about Freestyle Libre, and I still struggle with it. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's I love having the continuous glucose monitoring. I love having all of that information. But sometimes I struggle with, like, like as soon as I place it, my cortisol <laughs> levels start to rise. Right. I'm like, how am I going to keep up with the numbers? What do I tell the owner? What if they don't send them to me until like two weeks later and then there's not much I can do? What are some pointers that you tend to to talk to veterinarians about when it comes to continuous glucose monitoring? Okay, so we have, probably have, you know, a few different points with the glucose monitor consider. One is when do we use them? Two is how to get the information. And then three is what to do with the information. So as far as when to use them, I think that's obviously a preference thing for, for different practitioners. But I think that it is reasonable to consider using them during the regulation process. I mean, generally, it's a good idea to read the room because I'm sure we've all experienced that owner who when you tell them their dog has diabetes or they kind of turn white. That probably is not the person to say, hey, let's put this, you know, gadget on your dog and you know, let me talk to you every day. You know, so you know, obviously you wouldn't want to put it on in that situation necessarily. But I do think that if we use them during the regulation process, it will allow us to potentially get to where we want to be more quickly than we would with the traditional weekly or biweekly glucose curves. I think that, I mean, obviously I wasn't around, but I suspect that the original plan to monitor a glucose curve every week somewhat evolved from an owner's willingness to come at certain intervals. Like what owner would be like, oh, come every three days for a glucose curve? No, not likely. Uh, so, you know, if we have the the Libre attached, then potentially we could consider making dosage adjustments more frequently after we give them an acclimation period of say three to five days. It's obviously, you know, there's not a written rule, but I certainly would say that we could do it more frequently than every seven days. Uh, so uh, I definitely think during the regulation period is great. People also use them intermittently as sort of the, just sort of the check-in as we do the glucose curve now. But I think in that scenario, we have the same dilemma, which is what do we do if we put it on and the data is kind of not where we want it to be, but the dog is doing great. You know, what do we do about that? And then some people, you know, say we should use them during periods of dysregulation. And I'm fine with that as long as we remember that we need to figure out why there was dysregulation, you know, because we need to address whatever it was that made things change. So I think those are the, probably the three times that you know, we can definitely consider using the Libre. And as far as what to do or how to obtain the data, I definitely recommend uh, getting a hospital LibreView account. Uh, and uh, that's pretty simple. The instructions are on, on the LibreView uh, website. Uh, because what that allows you to do is to get the patient data on your own, meaning you don't rely on an owner sending you information. Uh, you get, and not only that, but you can look at the data 
in whatever format you like. Some people like to look at the average sugar. Some people like to look at the daily curves. But then if you have the, the information on your computer, you can choose how the data is presented to you. I think that if we have our owners just email us curves, the, the data after at the end of the two-week period, uh, then we've lost that opportunity to adjust the dose you know, more quickly, like I said, I, sometimes people will just send screenshots of glucose values and then, you know, we're not much better than spot sugars. So I think having that access online is, you know, is probably the best way to do it. And then you can also take the opportunity to call the owner without them reaching out to you and saying, hey, I was looking at the numbers and I see that they're whatever they are. And the owner just will be bedazzled by the care that you have, you know, for their veterinary, for their pet. Uh, so I think, you know, it's an opportunity for us to provide a, an amazing level of customer service to our clients. That's a good point that, you know, to, for you to reach out without, you know, them initiating it probably can can give owners a level of comfort that in a really stressful disease. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to set owners up with some realistic expectations with these things. Uh, one, I think it's important to tell owners that the Libre could last anywhere from four seconds uh, to 14 days. Right, because if we tell them it's going to last for 14 days and it falls off or stops working, then they are, you know, disappointed. Because this is not a device that's approved for use in our patients; it's just validated for use in our patients. And our patients are certainly more wiggly and oriented differently than people, so these sensors were not designed to to stay in our patient's skin. So, you know, they sometimes will fail in less than you know the 14 days. But it's important to explain to owners that even if we get 24 hours or 48 hours, that's, you know, a full 24 hour glucose curve, which is amazing information that we wouldn't get, even if they did a glucose curve at home, uh, because this sam this is sampling their pet like constantly throughout the day. So I think, you know, they they're it's disappointing if it falls off early, but it's still oddly probably cheaper and better than a glucose curve would be. Yes, I would agree. Unless you have one of those four second patients, which I did at one point where it was hopeless. Like, <laughs> You feel bad because people unfortunately cannot get reimbursed or new sensors sent as you, I can attest to that because I've gotten hundreds of sensors replaced for my son. But you know, right now it's not possible for our patients to, to get those replaced. The other thing I think it's brings up is also the too much information. I think just as even with owners who do home sugar monitoring, there are owners who get a little hyper-focused on paying attention to the pet's numbers. So I think we need to educate them and even ourselves. Like I said, it's it's a lot of information for us too to focus on the good days you know, and make our decisions based on the good days. I was actually going to ask you that next. It's like you're in my brain here. <laughs> that yes, kind of one of the perils of continuous glucose monitoring. I think we get some owners who with the best of intentions, they're just trying to do the best thing for their pet. And they're, you know, like you said, they've, they've heard about in humans, you know, well, tweaking the glucose and you give this much insulin based on this much blood sugar. And, and I think it can be really tempting sometimes both for owners and also for us as veterinarians to make these like little teeny adjustments and really try to tweak that insulin dose. And, and I, I think the concern with that, correct me if I'm wrong, would, would lead to overregulation. Can you talk a little bit about tweaking, you know, kind of the perils of tweaking insulin doses and overregulation? 
Absolutely. You know, what I would say is these continuous glucose monitors, as well as glucometers, are definitely slanted toward limiting hypoglycemia, meaning, you know, when the interstitial sugar says that it's 70, it's likely a little bit higher in your patient. But, you know, we need to still remember that our patient whose interstitial sugars is, let's say, under 100, it's just, it's possible that their blood sugar is actually even lower than that. So, you know, I certainly encourage people to pay attention to things like if in your reading you have numbers that are high, meaning over 400, because that's the maximum the thing I'll show you, I think, and 70 in the same 12-hour period, that's going to suggest to you that your patient is overregulated. Or if you see that one day the sugar was 70, and then the next day, the whole day is 400, that sort of clues you into the same thing. So, you know, we kind of need to, one of the things I recommend doing to try to encourage people to not focus on, you know, the, the glucose being too low is actually change the target range within your LibreView system because it, it comes as a human 70 to 180, I believe. And I usually have people change it to 100 to 250 because that will alert us when the sugar is under 100. And then we'll know, uh-oh, you know, maybe we need to adjust our dose because particularly if we look at our bad days instead of our good days and keep increasing the dose because of the bad days, you know, we're going to end up, you know, probably with a, a definitely overswinging patient. And in, in this context, you're in an overswing, we're talking about more of a Samoyji type of type of effect versus overregulation, meaning can can you specify with overregulation a little bit more like what exactly you're referring to? Because I'm thinking and this is I'm showing showing my lack of knowledge here. When when you said if you have 470 in the same day that you probably have an overregulated patient, are you using overswing and overregulated similarly there? Yeah, interchangeable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They're definitely interchangeable. Because to me, any episode of hypoglycemia, unless it is associated with, oh, you know, we both gave the dog insulin, or oh, we we ran around the block six extra times, or with some explanation, without some explanation, is an indication to me that the dose needs to be reduced because our patients should not be perilously close to developing clinical hypoglycemia all the time. You know, sometimes is is tricky for those dogs who are athletic, who, you know, sometimes, you know, we may need to have plans for, you know, extra exercise days, whether it is manipulating the dose or whatever. But I don't think our patients need to be on the edge. If you think about your, you know, little chihuahuas or teeny little dog, three extra laps around the kitchen, yeah, that's a lot of work for a little dog like that, yeah. you know, so. Uh, yeah, so you do that with an interstitial glucose of 70, you could get into trouble yeah, quickly. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's definitely, it, it really can help us, but you know, for those owners who keep it on the dog all the time, which it could definitely make, make, make life more difficult than it needs to be. I think sometimes we'll definitely run into that situation for an owner who has experience with human diabetes and I get it because they're, you know, obviously, particularly if it's in themselves and they're used to knowing all the time. But I always try to remind people that our dogs are different in a lot of ways, but probably one of the most important ways is that we control everything they do. You know, their lives are very easy to keep consistent. You know, unlike, you know, like like my son when he was a toddler, 
he would eat like, I don't know, every hour. <laughs> so I constantly had to give him insulin. But our dogs, you know, they eat when you give them food. Same with you know, cats are, you know, funny, they eat when they want, but, you know, we can control all of those things. So we don't need the, the continuous glucometer all the time because things should be relatively stable once we have them where we want them to be. Yeah, that's a really good point as far as, you know, what they eat, when they eat, this kind of stuff. A lot of that we can really regulate right. fairly closely. Yeah. And I definitely, this is a lesson I learned from Jonah. <laughs> there would be times when he was, before he took, actually, even after he switched to an insulin pump, you know, because typically people will give themselves insulin before they eat. And, but when he was younger, because you know how kids are, you never know if they're going to finish their food. We would either give him some of his insulin and the rest later. You know, I learned that if I waited too long, to give him his insulin, it could mess up the rest of the day. Even you wouldn't, you would think it would only be immediately right thereafter, but you know, the whole day could be terrible. So that's made me sort of focus a little more on our patients. Like maybe that's something we don't respect enough in that, you know, let's focus on having the owner really do their best to feed the dog at the same time every day and give the dog the insulin at the same interval after eating or even during eating, if it's your typical, you know, well-eating Labrador retriever or something like that. Uh, and then also feed, uh, I actually recommend using a measuring cup because even if we eyeball it, you know, particularly for our smaller diabetic patients, just a few kibbles can make a huge difference, you know, because we're giving them insulin in response to a carbohydrate load. So let's keep that carbohydrate load as consistently as possible. You know, leaning, you know, over more toward the cat side, people often get a little concerned if a cat is a grazer, you know, whether or not we can leave the food out. And I, you know, in my training, I did learn, you know, if it, ideally we would like them to be meal feeders, but if a cat is a grazer, it's not worth risking them getting hepatic lipidosis, and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, to allow them conti to continue to be grazers because we're hopefully going to be switching them to a diet that is going to uh, work with us and, and hopefully induce a remission. And then, you know, we'll just keep them on that food, you know, once they're in remission, hopefully. Absolutely. Like I said, it's like you're in my head because that was going to be my next question or kind of these, these ancillary things that we can do in addition to our primary therapy, which of course is insulin to help regulate these guys. And I like what you said, as far as consistency of timing, when it comes to feeding and insulin, that gives me a whole new empathy for owners with diabetic pets, which I always think about of like, oh my gosh, like to, to have to get on that consistent of a schedule. I don't know. My, my days are never consistent from one to the next. So huge challenge, you know, using a measuring cup and timing of insulin and things like that. What are some other monitoring tips that outside of, we talked a lot about continuous glucose monitoring. If, for example, maybe, maybe we have an owner who we don't want to do continuous glucose monitoring because they're obsessed with checking and tweaking and we're like, this is not good for anybody. Or maybe like my cat patient that I'm thinking of who was one of the Libre last four seconds <laughs> patients. What else can we do to make sure that we're keeping our patients in good regulation? I mean, there's definitely certainly the traditional, you know, glucose curves. You know, we, those are still, you know, sometimes as veterinarians, we tend to, when we get new technology, we start dissing the old technology. <laughs> Just because we can do, you know, continuous glucose monitoring, like you said, it doesn't, you know, work into every situation. I, I think that, you know, we can certainly still do in-hospital glucose curves, but I think, you know, one of the 
issues that I sometimes run into with veterinarians when they do these curves is they change the patient's normal day, shall we call it. Uh, they'll have the owner hold off on feeding the pet, hold off on giving the insulin until they're able to come in and measure the pretreatment blood sugar. And I typically advise against that because when we're doing these glucose curves, we want to do them in the quote unquote normal situation. So as much as we all learned the importance of the pretreatment values, I prefer having the day start normally. So I know that the patient ate the normal amount that it ate. The owner gave the insulin at the time they normally do, which if we're going to you know, start manipulating that. You know, we need to know what things are like in the current situation. And then we just start the curve, you know, as soon as the patient gets there. And then hopefully we'll get more of that free treatment-ish time, you know, at the other end of the curve. So I think, yeah, that's very, you know, something that, again, we still need to interpret it and, you know, based on the patient that's in front of us. But I think we definitely can, glucose curves are still a reasonable option. I frequently get asked, about the use of serum fructosamine in monitoring our patients. And again, you know, I think as long as we interpret it based on the patient in front of us, I think it's a somewhat useful tool. Although I can't remember the last time I ran a serum fructosamine, I was surprised at the value in that usually the good regulated ones are pretty good and the, <laughs> the poorly regulated ones are. But I can say that you know, even though my son wears a continuous glucose monitor all the time, they still measure his A1C. Uh, so, you know, it's, you know, sort of a something similar in the human side. And then certainly, you know, for the owner who really can't do anything else, you know, we can go old school. You know, back in the day when I first started practicing, you know, we did a lot more urine sugar monitoring and urine ketone monitoring. I think that, you know, urine sugar monitoring is useful as long as we consider it a trend, meaning it's, there are some days when the dog sugar is going to, urine sugar is going to be two plus and that's okay. As long as the, the patient isn't having a change in its, you know, clinical signs. But to me, the most valuable thing about urine glucose monitoring is when it's negative, because when your patient's urine sugar is negative, you know that its blood sugar is at least beneath its renal threshold, which would suggest that it might be potentially lower than what we want it to be. So if you have an owner who is monitoring urine sugars at home and they report that the um, urine sugars have been negative, then that might be the time to encourage them to come in and get a glucose curve you know, to confirm, you know, what's going on, particularly, you know, if it happens to be a cat. Although truthfully, I think with feline diabetics, one of the best ways when you're doing urine sugar monitoring to know that the cat might be in remission is when the owner calls you and says, I can't ever get their urine anymore, you know, because they're no longer <laughs> urinating enough for them to capture, you know, any urine sugar because it's, they're urinating a normal volume, which who knows when, you know, with a normal cat, when they do that. So, and I, I'd say the last probably and most useful thing about urine monitoring uh, is, you know, monitoring for ketones because, you know, certainly anytime you know, an owner is monitoring urine ketones and they are positive, they should certainly be trained to call you because, you know, 
the presence of ketones in the urine for a patient receiving insulin is definitely a sign that something is going wrong and we need to, to see the patient and figure that out. And, you know, just for all of our other listeners, because of course I remember the renal threshold for glucose off the top of my head, but not to spoil it for everyone, can you remind us what the renal threshold for glucose is in the dog and a cat? For dogs, I believe it's like sort of in the 180 range, but cats, I think it can go up to even higher, like 250 or something like that. They're they're pretty good at it. At keeping glucose out of their urine. Right. And, you know, really the more important thing to remember is that it is a potential indicator of hypoglycemia. And certainly they are, in an ideal world, our patients would have negative urine sugar. But the reason that we keep them a little positive is that we know that when they're a little positive, that they're not hypoglycemic. So, I mean, it, it all goes to our number one goal, which is avoiding hypoglycemia while controlling clinical signs. And yeah, I actually did not at all remember that cats' <laughs> renal threshold was that high. Well, it's, it's much higher than dogs because they're they're cats. And it makes sense to keep them a little bit positive because, you know, initially when you said 250, I went, oh, that seems kind of high if they're coming back positive for glucose in their urine. But I feel like I would be perfectly happy with a cat who stayed, you know, somewhere in the two to three hundreds regularly. Exactly. Well, even a dog. I mean, our my target is, you know, if you look at the paper that they first, uh, that they did comparing the alpha track to the Libre in dogs, their target range was 90 to 250, I believe. So for the, for the interstitial. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wide. And, you know, I tend to like my nadir to be like hundred ish because when it gets a little lower, like if I see an 80 to me, that's like a 50 yeah, and a half. Couple laps around the kitchen. <laughs> I said one more lap around the, t- a couple laps around the kitchen. That thing's, you know, and I think having asymptomatic hypoglycemia is pretty frequent and, you know, just because our patients tolerate it doesn't mean we should leave it that way because you know, they. Yeah. And I can't imagine it feels good to have that dramatic swing in blood glucose no, throughout the day. No, it doesn't. And, and, you know, just because they don't have, you know, because let's think about your typical cat or 10 year old dog. They sleep a lot. Yeah. So it's really hard to tell if they're sleeping a lot because their blood sugar is 40 or if they're sleeping a lot because they're 12 years old, you know, so, and they can't come up to us and say, pardon me, I'm feeling a bit sluggish. Do you mind giving me a snack? Like to, like I said, that's, you know, part of our, why our targets are significantly higher than they are in people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Gosh, this is such a great discussion. I feel like I'm learning so much sitting here talking with you about all of this. It's clear that you educate veterinarians all day long about doing this in in a healthy way. The last question I wanted to make sure and cover, because this is always one that kind of throws me for a loop, are comorbidities. Because you find that diabetic patient, and I feel like, at least for me, it can be easy to get tunnel visioned on that diabetes and say, let's regulate the diabetes. And then when it's not getting regulated, then it's like the light bulb comes on. I'm like, oh, maybe there's something else going on. Can Uh you talk a little bit about kind of when to be on the lookout for these comorbidities and maybe some of the common things that you've seen that have caused it to be difficult to regulate a diabetic patient? Well, the first thing I would say is as far as comorbidities go, I know that often diabetes and Cushing's disease are mentioned in the same sentence because there is such incredible overlap between uh, a dog with diabetes and a dog with Cushing's as far as their PUPD, their eat a lot, they're annoying. <laughs> and so what I always try to focus on for a newly diagnosed diabetic, no matter what their alkvoss is, 
do not diagnose diabetes on the same day, right? Because confirming a diagnosis of Cushing's disease in a dog with diabetes is very challenging. And so what I would say is first endeavor on the regulation of the diabetes. And if it doesn't go well, then, you know, look back and consider Cushing's. Because if you start the dog on insulin and within three weeks, its blood sugar ranges from, I'll make it up, uh, 174 to 326, that dog likely does not have Cushing's disease. Because if you think about it conceptually, a dog with Cushing's disease, all that circulating cortisol shouldn't have a blood sugar in our target range. So just having the sugar in the target range, to me says, nope, Cushing's is off the list. That's definitely something I think of, say, in the beginning of treatment. Let's just say three, four weeks later, the dog is still in the 400s. It's happy wagging its tail, but every time the owner checks the urine sugar there's or the urine, there's ketones in it, then I might, in that particular case, you know, start thinking about Cushing's disease. Not that it's the only thing that can make regulation difficult, but that's definitely not something I would diagnose right away, but I would, you know, certainly get to a point where I feel as if I am making appropriate dosage adjustments, yet my patient is not showing any signs of progress. Because I think one of the challenges, I mean, we all learned in veterinary school that there is an quote unquote insulin resistance dose. I learned in vet school for a dog, it was a unit per pound twice a day. Some people do a unit and a half per kilograms twice a day, but I now sort of more think of it conceptually rather than an absolute number. Meaning an insulin resistance dose is the dose at which time you start thinking, hey, this insulin's not working. Maybe I need to figure out why. First, you know, we would then obviously look at the patient, look for some of the more common things, like we said, like Cushing's, urinary tract infections, hypothyroidism, you know, hyperthyroidism in cats, you know, those other things. And yeah, I think sometimes the challenge is to figure out if it is the patient or the product. Um, but that's a whole other, a whole other day. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember one that I had that she'll always stick with me. She was she was old and not not the healthiest dog in the world. And we diagnosed diabetes and we fought to regulate. We're not having good luck. And she was intact. And, you know, so the message kept coming back, spare, spare, spare. And I was like, I do not want to put this old decrepit dog under anesthesia for this procedure. Like what if, you know, what if she doesn't do well and all this, man, we finally got fed up with it. We, you know, the owner and I decided together, we said, all right, we're going to, we're going to bite the bullet here. We're going to go ahead and, uh, and spare. And she regulated perfectly after that. And there's like a 5% chance, maybe less that if you spay that dog, it could theoretically not be diabetic in the long term, but I would never, I would never, if that ever happens, it's like a, like a miracle more than anything else. But, you know, I, I encounter that a lot. The hesitance to spay the dog because it's old, spay the dog because it has diabetes and spay the dog because it's expensive. But it's important to inform the owner that once a dog sort of heat cycle changes or whatever, we'll get things under control. But as soon as it 
goes back into heat, we're going to lose all the progress we've made. And let's not even talk about the risk of developing a pyometra and imagine how expensive that spay is going to be. And I don't think, you know, we can't wait necessarily to have them well controlled to spay them because it's like a vicious cycle. <laughs> just, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you're not yeah. going to get them well controlled until they're spayed. Yes. So if you wait and, until they're well controlled, you're never going to get them spayed. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's tricky um, because obviously... These are owners who didn't spay their pet when they were six months old. So getting them to do it when it's later, you know, is uh, is tricky. But it definitely, like you said, it's, you know, the best thing you can do for an intact female dog. I will tell you what my uh, favorite zebra is uh, to think about, you know, because every once in a while you'll get that dog who or cat who's just kind of not responding and there's they're not necessarily having any other clinical signs that would you know point in any particular direction to any disease they might be losing weight but something i think you know we don't necessarily think of right off the bat is either exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or b12 deficiency or you know some of those things the the less common diseases that you know, sometimes when you know we've done our urinalysis, our chemistry panel, whatever, ultrasound or whatever we do to try to figure things out. I like to add that into the options of tests to do for difficult to regulate patients because if you know, it may be that they they don't have signs of EPI yet and we've caught it fast enough that they're they're not going to get emaciated and slimy stool and all the classic things. And if they have just B12 deficiency, that tells us, oh, there's something, you know, going on in this patient's intestinal, distal small intestine. Maybe we should start a food trial and see if we can control it that way. But you know, it's definitely something that is more of a zebra disease, but it definitely can happen. Absolutely. All good things yeah. to be on the lookout for when we get one of those that just doesn't want to regulate. And the other crazy one is insulinoma. If you have a dog who's been on the same dose for like I don't know, two years, then all of a sudden they're getting hypoglycemic. You know, it's definitely something to to have on the list. It's weird. You wouldn't think that's like, you're like lost the pancreas lottery on that one, but it's, it definitely, it definitely happens. Well, Nissa, this has been such a good conversation. I feel like I can see why people call you regularly to say, walk me through this because you just have a really practical kind of let's look at the patient and take a really common sense and, you know, not treating a number type of approach. So thank you so much for joining me and going over all of this. Are there any final thoughts you want to share? Well, I actually uh, just returned uh, from my a veterinary school reunion number, which I will not announce. And I ran into one of my favorite professors who was in fact our endocrinology professor. And I always go back to this one statement that he made to us, which is look at the dog, the dog will tell you. And I think that there are few diseases for which this applies more than diabetes. Because obviously, you know, if we forget about the patient, then we'll make a bunch of incorrect treatment decisions. Such a good reminder. And I know you won't say it, so I'll say it. Go Gators. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Uncle Mikey, also my endocrinology professor. And it, I was going to say, you're, it can't be that high of a number because you said we're going to go back to old school and do the urine monitoring. And, um, and he also taught us about urine monitoring for glucose and ketones and all of that stuff. So <laughs> if, if it's a long ways off for it's you, it's a long old. ways off for me too. Yeah, pretty old stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. Well, thank you again. What a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 
I know that talk gave me a lot of perspective in management of diabetic patients, so I hope everyone else out there enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you so much, Dr. Ryan Saltz, for joining us. Thank you to Merck Animal Health for making this episode possible. Again, I have no idea how any of this works, but if you're out there listening and you enjoyed this episode, please go and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm told that it'll really help other veterinary professionals find us and get this great information as well. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.